Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. A very special guest today, Mufti Muhammad Farhan, Dr. Muhammad Farhan, an Islamic jurisprudence specialist and individual who's going to bring us in a bit of enlightenment as to the Muslim faith, his application of it in the States, where he stands, what he thinks, and what he does. Welcome to Seldom Said, Mufti. Um, thank you so much, Bob, for having me here. It's an honor for me to be here with you at this moment. The honor is ours, I can assure you. Can we start with a bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place? Sure. So uh, my name, again, is Mohammed Farhin. Uh, the title that I have now currently, and we'll talk about that shortly as well, Mufti Farhan, which most of the people know me with. Uh, I'm raised uh, in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, on my All my education started with my elementary school, my public school, my high school. Everything was um, in um, Brooklyn. And uh, and from there, uh, after I had completed uh, my high school, uh, there was a sense of spark which allowed me to go and further my education uh, in Islamic studies. Uh, so yes, I grew up in New York, loved the city, um, and my parents originally came from Pakistan. My dad is an engineer, my mom is a host, housewife, um, and my dad had traveled the world for his business and works, and finally in his uh, 80s, around 1980s, he decided to settle here for his children. Uh, my oldest brother was old enough to start college at that time, um, and that's the time that my dad made that move and we settled here. Uh, from, and for me, it was a very early childhood that I began here in, in New York. You had mentioned earlier that your graduate studies, your advanced studies in law, Islamic law, were presented to you in Karachi, in Pakistan. Is there a rationale behind going outside the states to find an elemental truth in Islam? Sure. Uh, I think it's a great question. Uh, so with, with my studies, with referring to my studies itself, I studied most of my Islamic education in Pakistan. Uh, in a place known as Benoria International University, uh, which is also a, a collaboration with Karachi University, a famous university in Pakistan, in Karachi, the southern portion of Pakistan itself. Um, and the reason for me to travel that far and leave my family, and I would, of course, come back every year and visit my parents and my siblings, it was to actually go and study the roots uh, of the the religion from the expert scholars that we find, uh, which we don't have, um, you know, we did not have in the in the early 2000s uh, in the U.S. So I really wanted to go back. We had some Islamic scholars who had smaller institutions available in the U.S. at that time, but very small, maybe in Buffalo, in, in Queens, and small different areas. But uh, again, with all of that, we had the teachers of the teachers of those individuals still alive and present. And I really wanted to go and travel and study from the source um, and, and get the most from those particular institutions. And that's why, uh, even though it was tough for uh, a 17, 18-year-old to, to travel at that time and go and study, but uh, it, things became easier for me because 
my parents, uh, as I said, that they were from Pakistan, so I had some relatives who were still there. So it was easier for me to communicate and go and meet and, of course, be able to uh, spend some time and study. So the the initial studies began, and, of course, I finished all the way towards the, the PhD in Islamic jurisprudence that is known as a mufti. Um, when, when we talk about a mufti, and you might have heard this word before, it's a little different from the word imam. So a lot of time when we talk about Muslim clergy or Islamic clergy, we hear the word imam. So imams are is, is a great title. It usually refers to an individual who leads our congregations uh, in, in our mosques, in our, in our Islamic centers, uh, five-time daily prayers. And these are the individuals who can answer your daily questions, your needs and necessities. They also conduct marriage ceremonies. They also lead funerals. So they do a lot. The imams have a lot of responsibilities. But along with the imam work, if you spend extra few years uh, while studying uh, Islamic law uh, and jurisprudence, that's how you become uh, or you receive the title of a mufti. And then, of course, um, at that time when I went to study in Pakistan, there were some of the, the greatest muftis uh, who write Islamic fatwa, which is Islamic verdicts. So I really wanted to be in their, uh, you know, find their, their mentorship to actually be able to do work properly. Because I, I personally believe when it comes to answering questions in Islam fatwa, it's not always only about books. It's about being in the company of those who have spent years studying this. So just sitting with them and learning from their experiences was just so great. It would seem that in the West, we treat the complexities of religion with a certain simplicity. Islam is complex. It's not easy, perhaps, to totally discern. It's easy to embrace. Do you feel that's a liability in transplanting a faith into a Western environment like the States? So uh, basically when, when you look at the faith uh, and religion of Islam itself, and I'll, I'll quote to you a saying of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He said, Kul, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this in Arabic and I'll translate that in English. And he said, Kullu mawludin wulida ala fitra. Uh, this the sentence in Arabic means that every child that is born is born upon nature, upon clarity. They are born good, meaning they are born clear of any you know hatreds and bigotry and and falsehood and wrong. Every child is is born with clear minds and perspectives, uh, but it is time and place and things around them that environment that affects them over time. And I and I believe that and and. And, and many of the, the, the teachings that we have within the faith, be it Islam or be Christianity or Judaism, it's all close to nature, meaning it's not something which is abnormal or something that is not proper. Because if, if you follow any religion properly, it is not taking you away from human nature. So it's bringing you to the roots. It's bringing you to the reality, even though... Maybe over time, things may not remain the same. The points, the perspectives, the minds of individual change. And I, and I think that a lot of things which were considered to be indecent a couple of decades ago are considered okay now. But, you know, perspectives and minds of people and how the takes of things can change from people. But I think faiths and religions 
and gives us a foundation that will remain no matter how the environment changes. So I think the basic fundamental rules of every faith, including Islam, is something that is very compatible to every society, uh, no matter where it is, uh, be it a place which is dominantly Muslims or, or maybe it's the West uh, where there are not a lot of Muslims, uh, but it's compatible to the society where, where every person who follows the faith of Islam lives. Close associate who has since uh, passed on once told me that in regard to understanding Islam, one had to understand it in the original Arabic. I do enjoy philosophically having presented to me religious beliefs, the Quran, the Old and New Testament, the Bhagavad Gita, things of that sort. Your Arabic sounds as if it's a high tone. Is it difficult to learn the language? Sure. So, um, and and just as a clarity, um, when when you look at the Muslims uh, across the globe, 1.5, 1.6, don't know really the exact numbers of the, the billion Muslims that are around there, uh, I, I think approximately 20% of the Muslim population in the world actually speaks Arabic. Uh, and most of the Muslims across the world do not actually speak Arabic. So, uh, and and just because the Holy Quran, which is the holy book itself, which is recited by the Muslims and of course taken as a means of guidance, it's in Arabic. That's why a lot of Muslims, they study Arabic language, not only to understand, but actually mostly to recite the Quran itself. And I'll explain that now. So if you look at a normal household, so if you if you, if you you look at my brothers or sister or my parents who have never studied in an Islamic institution or university, they, can, they don't speak Arabic, um, but they can read the Quran. And sometimes they understand portions of it and sometimes they don't. So for many Muslims, like around 1.6 billion or 7 billion Muslims, it's, it's, it's a blessing for them to learn the text in Arabic. So that's why if you see all the mosques here in Nassau County or Suffolk County in New York, you will see that there are after-school programs where mosques and teachers are teaching little kids or youngsters or teenagers how to recite the Arabic alphabet so that they can actually read the Holy Quran itself. But it's not about them speaking the language itself. But now... When you talk about language itself, uh, Arabic language itself is it's 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 a difficult language in its concept, but it's a very uh, you know rich language in, in a sense of it, of its meanings and and details, and that's why when you mentioned that uh, that you were told to learn the religion in its original form, uh, you know, for me as as a person who studied the Arabic language. If I read the Quran and I read it through the minds and perspectives of how I learned Arabic and the details and the grammars and syntax and lintics of Arabic, it's a whole different feeling to me. Every word has a much deeper meaning itself, right? So uh, uh, let me give you an example. So w when you read the, the, the Quran, it says God made you in the wombs of, of your mother's able to listen and able to see. Sami am basira. The word sami means the one that can listen and basira means the one that can, that can see. So every time that you hear the, the creation of a child, you hear that you have been created that you can hear and see. 
hear and see. Hear and, you always hear the hearing per, per aspect before seeing. So when you study the Arabic language and you, you study the depth of it, and then, of course, you implement that into the science, you realize that a child in the womb of the mother is, is able to listen before that they can see itself. So there's a lot of deeper study that you can do just because you know the language in a deeper manner. So that's why a lot of time there is a lot of emphasis to study the language so you can better understand the text itself. But of course, it's not a condition of one's faith. It's not that being a Muslim, it's mandatory for you to learn Arabic itself, but it's always better so that you can study the deeper roots of the, uh, the, the, the religion itself. I would imagine to discern and discuss philosophically the inner tenets of a religion one would simply have to know more about the religion and its language than the words printed on the page. Would your original language have been Urdu at home? Yes, it is. It is Urdu. So Urdu, then English, then Arabic. Mastery of the languages. Can you think in them? Can you dream in them? Can you speak in them freely when you speak to your congregation? Can you talk to them in their native tongues? without the extrapolations of having somebody bind you and say, this is the English word, that's that word, this is back again. Sure. So uh, I guess it, it was a difficult uh, you know, moment in the beginning because, as I said, I was raised young in New York. I, I went to my elementary school and, and my middle school and my high school all in Brooklyn. And I was young, 7, 8 years old, when, when I started my you know, uh, life here in America with my parents moving to New York. Um, one thing that I realized that helped me keep Urdu, um, because Arabic itself is something I'll talk about at the end, which I actually learned in an institution. Academically, you sit down and you learn and you write and you're sort of told to even dream in that language um, because to learn the depth of it. Uh, Urdu was something that became, which is a language that is used mostly in Pakistan, in India, and in different areas of subcontinent. Um, Southeast uh, subcontinent. So um, Urdu was something that I picked up because of my parents. And, and I'm still, you know, thankful for them uh, that they always tried and told us to speak this language at home within our own siblings and with them. They said that you will always pick up English when you go to school. You will be able to learn the language. Uh, you will be able to speak English with your friends and your peers at your school, at work. You will be able to do it. But but allow yourself to speak this language that your parents had learned and spoken all their lives. So that allowed me to speak that language fluently within my own home. Yes, it was the task of learning how to write because we would never write it in America. So when I did begin to study my Islamic courses, that was the time when I actually began to pick up the pen and write the Arabic and Urdu language itself just so that I can know what I'm saying. And the similarities in alphabets are, are very similar. So one has 26 alphabets, one has 29 alphabets. So it was very similar. And they're almost the same alphabets and almost very similar pronunciations. So it was sort of helpful for me in learning. But when it came to Arabic, uh, and of course, the course that we study is approximately eight to nine years, uh, you really get to study the deep Arabic language from the very beginning. You take a couple of years, two to three beginning years, just to 
to to learn the details of the Arabic grammar itself. And then, of course, over time, you have an opportunity of speaking the classes that you are being taught, such as, you know, the hadith, the sayings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, or the rulings or things of that sort. They're all taught in Arabic by the teachers. So when they speak Arabic, you learn to pick up the words. And then there are a lot of students who, who are from different backgrounds and then you learn to speak with them because you're in that phase of learning the language that becomes much easier. So uh, when I came back after my studies, it was sort of difficult in the beginning for me to sort of address the congregation in, in a very comfortable manner because I was so used to speaking Arabic and Urdu while I was studying in Pakistan. Uh, and then I came back and it was tough. And then, of course, I had some very good friends and some of the elders in the community who suggested me to start reading some books and you know some great books on on speaking and things and it became sort of a second nature over time that you know what I just got to change my mode and now sometimes I get an opportunities that there are certain families in the communities that they want their marriages or other portions to be done in Urdu so sometimes that feels difficult for me because I've become so used to over the past 11 years in giving the congregation in Arabic uh, in English now so it's it's difficult for other language but I do try to juggle between the three languages. It's fascinating. Many religious spokespersons we've had on these microphones have decided to describe a moment in their lives where they didn't want this. It required so much of them, so much of the giving. The enrichment came later. Was there an epiphanal moment in your life, a Damascus moment, where in point of fact you said, this is what I'll do? This is the direction I'll go, and that's the light I'll proceed to. I, I clearly remember that moment, and I share this with all the friends and, and people who know me. Um, it was right after high school, um, and a, a child growing up in, in New York and going to the school system and, and, the, and the way that the kids live their lives. I was just an ordinary kid just in the streets of Brooklyn, friends, and everything that, that everyone else would do. And, and and of course, I go back to where my parents, my father is an engineer, my brother is a computer engineer, my sister herself uh, is, is uh, a master's in biochemistry. Um, so myself also had that same vision right after high school that I was going to pursue medicine or even go to business school. So I actually was accepted for Stearns, uh, the, you know, the business school. Uh, and my sister, she was in Sophie Davis at that moment, the medical program in City College. So she was pulling me towards that. So that was something that was always in my mind. But then there was a spark in my heart in which my parents at that moment when nearing the ending of my, my high school, there was a change in our family. Uh, that change itself was a little bit more towards religion itself. Um, we, 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 I knew I was a Muslim since I was a child, but there was not a lot of practical Islam that I had seen within our own home. But nearing the ending of my high school time, my 17, 18 years old, I saw that there was a sense of change in my house. Um, and that change was towards religion itself. Um, and, and right after my high school had finished, uh, you know, that was a time that I really had to decide upon 
what I need to do further in my life. Do I go to school? Do I take my, you know, uh, Sophie Davis program, which is a seven-year medical program, and then go to medical school and pursue that? So it was it was a huge task. Or should I make a decision towards an Islamic institution? Or, you know, it, I, I still remember that was a battle that I had within my own self for days that I wasn't able to communicate with my friends and and and, and the things that were around me. And I still remember that one night, I, I, we, we lived in Brooklyn at that time, now I'm in Long Island. Um, I, I, we're in Brooklyn and one day I'm, I'm in this, we're in this apartment and I'm laying down on the bed and it's late night, I, I didn't have dinner, I didn't eat anything. And because I was going through all this, what choice will I make? What, if I go towards the religious side, I have to leave all of my, my things that I'm doing as a young child because it's, it's not only six, eight years of, of your studies. It's your lifetime commitment that you're giving for religion and faith. So I knew this decision wasn't easy. So I remember my, my mom walked inside the room, my brother, my sister, they walked inside the room and they said, you know what? You can make whatever choice you want in your life. No one is forcing you, you know. If you want to go towards your school or college, go ahead. If you want to choose a religious, you know, direction, you choose. It's your choice. And never, ever feel that, you know, we have ever forced you to make any decision in your life. And it was just, you know, I still couldn't. And finally, I remember it was my dad who walked in the room. He said exactly the same thing. He said, Farhan, you make whatever choice you want in your life. It's whatever you feel is best for you. And before he left, he said, but it would be a great honor for me that if I could be known as the father of a mufti. You know, th- these were the words that my dad actually mentioned. And and I don't know how, but it, it was something that just brought a spark in my heart. You know, it, it just took away all the stress that I had and difficulty and, and weight on my chest. And I didn't say anything to him, but I said, you know what, that's the direction that I'm going to take. And the next morning was the time I told my dad, you know what, I have made my decision that I'm going to go further. And and I and I feel that, you know, that was one of the, the greatest moments of my life that I made this decision. You know, I had many friends in corporate world and medical schools and, you know, doing their fellowships and so many great things that they're doing. They're amazing individuals. But, you know, even till today, I, I, I say that I, I don't regret making a decision of what I did uh, and going and studying our faith and religion and what I'm able to do at this time in my life. It's a fascinating moment. Is it engraved on your mind or do you keep a diary? Do you write things down? Such feelings. I, you know, I, I wish I could write um, uh, more things down. Uh, I, I remember I did this for at least a year of my life. I have that diary saved up, but then it just became too much, you know. Um, but I really wanted to share, and there, and you know, there are certain things without even writing; they just remain with you. You can't just forget those moments, and th- those are the moments that I really cherish, which uplift me sometimes, you know, and give me the strength in in in, in times. Uh, but yes, I don't. But I, these memories just remain in mind and heart forever. I do remember myself mentoring a young woman for examinations. Uh, She was older. She was scholarly. I did not really know her outside of the academic realm. Toward the end of our lessons and discussions, she said, Oh, by the way, I'd like you to know that I'm a sister of Wicca. I'm a witch. And my reaction was, All right, pass the peas. I mean, where do we go from here? Superstition, religion, that dichotomy has spun around many people's minds. Can you separate one from the other? Uh, it, it's 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 a it's a difficult one. Uh, I think it's possible. Uh, and again, 
there are a lot of things which I personally believe that a lot of Muslims themselves are unable to differentiate because they don't realize what's religion and what's culture. Um, and a lot of time, cultural baggages and cultural things uh, have taken such a position in the minds of so many believers, and I'll talk about the Muslims, that they're unable to differentiate this. And again, with with the superstitious beliefs and things like that 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 that, that goes around, and I and I I think it's just become a part of their lives. And and I and I try my best, and because I deal with a lot of millennials and young individuals as well, and they're more open to leaving behind cultures and learning the religious from the religion from the root. And 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 we find that there are so many things that. Uh, people within faith have adopted that have nothing to do with religion. And, and I think this is, and it's more cultural things that, that have taken part in their lives. And I and, and that is something that I also feel on, on a larger picture that I would like to also discuss in a few moments is the, uh, is the sense of, you know, um, the identity or, uh, or the way that that Islam you know exists in the minds of individuals it's a lot of time the choices that people made with culture adapting it within their own lives and thinking that's that is Islam and religion itself so I think that clarity has to be made it has to be made but sometimes it becomes so difficult I remember coming back I'll share an example with you about like how cultural has take part in religion so I remember when I came back from my studies uh, young, energetic, anything wrong that I would see, I would just point out and say, you're doing it wrong. And, you know, it takes time to learn wisdom to change the lives of individuals. You know, it takes time to build connections. So I remember it was, I think, the first time I was leading the Eid congregation. Eid is actually one of the largest holidays for the Muslims, where the largest amount of Muslims gather and they pray together and they celebrate that twice a year. So while giving that 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 sermon that I was providing, um, I said that right after this Eid celebration is done, we are going to go and we're going to hug each other for happiness and, and all that. And I said that has no place in Islam, you know, meaning it's not a part of our, 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 our festival. Yes, you can do that out of courtesy and love and care for others, but it's not. So a person got up and he said, I've been celebrating Eid for 60 years. You're a little kid. You don't know anything. And I've been doing this for 60 years and you tell telling me that I can't do this. So I, then I realized my own mistake. I said, you know what, there's better ways to correct. So a lot of time what happens is that culture becomes a part of religions. And that's why there are a lot of, uh, and I know it's a little political discussion, but there are a lot of so-called Muslim countries and areas where there are so many things that I personally believe have nothing to do with faith itself, right? Uh, the rights of the woman and so many other things that I, we can talk about forever that, that are more cultural in their own areas rather than the faith and religion itself. So that's something that really needs to be juggled. We're trying our best. I think the next generation, the millennials, the young ones, are letting go of the cultural baggages and they're learning their, the religion from the root itself. The Holy Quran itself, the text, in point of fact, uh, do you feel that there needs to be a thought of determination as to what words actually mean? Are words relevant as they were at the time of uh, the Hijra, as they are now? And one can say that of virtually every religion on the planet. Do you feel that religion has to have its own renaissance change? 
Sure. So, uh, 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 so looking at the words of Quran and 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 what I believe and I feel is that, you know, every word of of faith itself and is 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 it's solid and it's absolute and it's complete. Like for example, Quran itself, one of the last verses of the Holy Quran that was revealed to the Prophet, peace be upon him, was uh, chapter five, verse number three where God mentions to him and says, Al-yawma akmaltu lakum dinakum. Uh, today I have you know, completed your faith for you. Wa atmamtu alikum ni'mati. And I have perfected my favors upon you and I have chosen this religion for you. So perfection of the faith has already been done by God, meaning the way that he sent this book towards us, it's already in its perfect form. But I feel, as you mentioned, that it's us as humans for us to understand the words of God. And I guess as time passes by, the same things begin to change and we're able to understand so many greater things in our lives, you know, and things that they may not have been understood previously are being understood now. Uh, I was, you know, speaking to one of the congregations and I share this. It's a little deeper concept in Islam, but hopefully it will make a little sense. Uh, one of the, the hadith or the sayings of the prophetic saying mentions that a man came and said, O Prophet, peace be upon him, when is the day of judgment? So he said, I cannot tell you when the day of judgment is because I'm unaware of the time, but I can give you some signs. So he gave him some signs that when you will see this, when parents will be disrespected and when this will happen and when this will happen, when people will take the wealth of others and people will be oppressed and, and killing will occur so often, meaning he gave many, many signs. Amongst one of the things he mentioned was, An talidu amata In Arabic text, it means that when a slave girl will give birth to her mother, meaning when when uh, when a slave will give birth to her own mother like this was a concept never understood before someone in previous times when they would hear the commentary of this they would say oh children will mistreat their parents but now when you look at the medical concepts of surrogate moms right uh, and and you're renting wombs just because you can have a childbirth and of course that's a different concept to itself but Understanding the deep terminologies of faith is becoming more clear over time. As time is passing, the same words are having multiple meanings. So not in a sense of renaissance and changing the faith itself, but the understanding of the texts are becoming different from us. Ten years ago, the people may have understood the text a little different, but it doesn't mean that it changes the religion and faith itself, but it just means that we have greater understanding because of the greater amount of research and other factors in our lives. So yes, I believe that you know understanding, comprehension, uh, introspection of the faith is growing over time as we are learning so many things beside faith itself, and then we can collaborate these things to get together. Do you feel then, uh, Mufti, that any man or woman learning a faith has to accept the fact that they will learn it to their last breath? They will not simply know it. As many in the West argue, I understand, I know, nothing more to know, that we're all, uh, hoping I use the term properly, we're all talib, we're all students, we're all persons. Is that a difficult thing to transpose into the American ideology? You know, I, I think that's a very, very good question. And, and when I when I speak with 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 the students and especially youngsters, this is one of the most difficult things to get across to them, is to let them have an 
inner feeling that you don't know everything, right? That you are still on the path of learning. Because once you feel that you know everything, the growth for you actually stops. And if you consider yourself to be learning, you will always enhance and make yourself better because there's always people in this world that you will find who know more than you. It's not always about religion. It's about ethics, about moral, it's about character. There's always someone who is better better than us in something in their lives. So to learn from them. But along with keeping this within their own hearts, it's also important to make them realize that they don't lose their confidence. Uh, and, and that is something which needs to be also made very clear to them is that you can have pride, but not arrogance. Uh, and, 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 and juggling between these two things are, are sometimes difficult. That because arrogance is not something that is acceptable in faith, uh, in, uh, you know, anywhere. But to have pride for something that you have and, and, and to feel that without looking down at anyone else is something that is, that is you know, strengthening their, their inner self. So when it comes to the point of making them realize, and, and you use the word talib, the word talib in Arabic refers to someone who is a seeker, or especially the seeker of knowledge. Uh, and if someone is seeking and, and they're always continuing to focus on their growth, I, I think that's, that's the, one of the greatest qualities from someone. But again, that should not allow them to feel that they do not have a certain quality or qualification. Uh, so juggling between that is a difficult thing, but we try our best. And as I mentioned this in the beginning, that that's something that, that's very hard for me to discuss with, with the, the millennials or the young generation to let them feel that, you know what? You still have to learn. You, yes, you graduated from this program, that program, but there's still amount of growth that you need. But do not let this... You know, throw down your morals or your confidence that you don't know what you already know, but there's always more that you can learn in your life, uh, and and that is something that that's very delicate itself. Do you think then we perhaps overdo the term prodigy genius? We tell people they're gifted, they're touched. We make them feel as if they're in the light and of the light, rather than reflective of the light. Sure, uh, you're definitely right on that point, and and I think it. It, it all depends upon one's own inner self as well. I quote to you a saying of the Prophet, peace be upon him, he mentioned that do not, uh, you know, do, do not overpraise someone in front of them as it is though that you are throwing dirt on their face. That, that is approximate saying of the Prophet, that, you know, when you're overpraising someone or you're praising someone in front of them, you know, and, 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 you know, one thing that I always remember from our teachers is that praise people behind their backs rather than in front of them because that is something that is noble for that individual, right? It's easy for me to say good things about you in front of others while you're present. Uh, and that may also sometimes make that person arrogant, not you, but just someone. But if I was to speak of that goodness when you are not there, I think that is humanity and that is a great character. But going back to your initial question that you just asked, that, you know, 
considering people as prodigy or individuals that you know you're you're the best uh, as the young says goat the greatest of all time uh, and they use these terminologies and I think it, it all depends upon your own selves uh, I remember one of my teacher telling this and he said something so beautiful he says whenever you get a chance whenever it happens in your life that someone praises you uh, and 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 they say something in front of others he says, do two things. I still remember. He says, do two things. He said, pray to God that he allows that goodness, whatever he spoke about, to be instilled in your life. Sometimes people will overdo it and say things that you may not have. Pray to God that, oh God, I, I really don't have that. Allow me to be that individual. And number two, he said, is to always pray at that moment to hide your faults and sins from others, you know, and and, and let, let not this be the reasons that, you know, there, there it is it is the blessing from God that has allowed uh, your sins to be covered and they're looking at something good in you. And, and that is something amazing. And that is a favor of God. Let that favor be continuous for you by making supplication at that time. So I think it also depends upon individual of how they take that praise. If you take that praise and 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 you and may, may may God forgive forbid you become arrogant over that and of course it's a complete loss. But if someone receives that praise and realizes that you know what I'm nothing but it's God who's making this in their heart, I think it will spiritually enlighten them a little bit more. So I think it also depends upon individual persons as well. A Tibetan friend has an interesting phrase. When he meets a stranger, he asks, of what belief are you, sir? We tend to separate things that we consider to be foreign in our theosophical beliefs. Do you feel that is something that it's proven difficult for Islam to overcome, the fact that there are those who will say Islam is different? People want to accept it and denigrate what is outside of it. How would you respond to those criticisms, which are not rooted in fact, but they're there? Sure. So uh, a point that I mentioned in the beginning that I really wanted to emphasize, and that is something that I, uh, you know, I don't have the answer for, but I, I, I'm working really hard, and I really, and of course, whatever I can find out there to actually get uh, the right answer for that is that I think one of the biggest issues that we as Muslims face now is a narrative that has been set in the minds of people about faith and Islam and Muslims. The narrative that has been set for many individuals, and I think this is just human beings. Uh, you know, there are people with certain skin color, there are people with certain cultures, there are people with certain languages, or there are people with certain faiths such as Muslims or even Jews or anything else, there's a certain narrative that has been set in the minds of general public. And no matter what people do, those narratives are so hard to change. Uh, and and my biggest struggle now, along, along with many things that I'm doing now uh, with communities, with youth and with public, I think my biggest task now which I don't have an answer and solution for it, which I hope that I will be able to one day, is how can we work towards creating a clear 
narrative of the faith of Islam in the minds of individuals. I know there is a group of certain individuals in the world who will take the name of religion and do whatever they want, and they will smear the name and hijack the faith itself, and and all the rest of the 1.5 or 1.6 billion Muslims will just feel sorry for you know what what just happened. But how can we, as 1.5 to 6 billion? create a narrative in the minds of people. And just like people that I know, I have many friends from different ethnicities, different skin colors, and they go through the same thing, right? They walk inside a store and people begin to look like, God forbid, they're a thief or they're going to steal something, even though this person will buy the whole store, you know, and that's how financially stable they are. But it's a narrative that has been set in the minds of people for colors, for religions, and for individuals. So I think uh, this is a huge, huge uphill battle that has to continuously go further and see how we can do it, you know. Uh, and one of the things that, that I started doing within my own community is to get the community involved in outreach and giving back to the community. We have people from different professions. We have pharmacists. We have healthcare professions. We have accountants. We have lawyers. We have taxi drivers. We have store owners. You name it. I, I said, you know what? Don't only just do the work, but give something back to the community. So it feels as as the Muslims are becoming a part, as, as a narrative needs to be slowly made and, and cleared up. So, uh, you know, going back to a question, I know it's a little bit off from where you asked for, but I think this is the huge and, and the larger concern uh, that is for me at that moment for the faith itself. Those things that are temporal and those things that are spiritual return to that original question we posited at the beginning. When it relates to a country's nationality, when it relates to your responsibility to a state and a nation and a place, bearing arms and so forth, what is your definition of what is required of a citizen and is required of a human being? Sure. So uh, there was a great article um, and it was a sermon that I actually delivered was, can you be a good Muslim and a bad person, right? And that is not a possibility. You cannot be a good Muslim and a bad person because if 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 you are a good Muslim, then you have to be a good person as well. Um, so when it comes to your religious responsibilities, your moral, your ethic responsibilities, and I share this a lot with my congregation and I tell them this, that your faith is not the four walls of the mosques or the Islamic center. Your faith is 24 hours of your life, your work, your family, your children, your wife, all of these things are, are, you know, are your responsibility. So when you go back to the question that you just asked, uh, you know, and, and this is something that I try instilling in, in, the, in the next generation because I know, as I mentioned, that with our elders, there's a lot of culture that is still there. But with a young generation, that identity has to be placed that you are an American, and of course, now with your faith itself, you're also a Muslim. So you need to realize you are at home, you're American. You are as American as anyone else to make sure that you fulfill your responsibilities, such as, so I'll give you an example with my field, my particular field. So it's jurisprudence, it's law. A lot of people will come to me and said, it will say, uh, is interest usually acceptable in faith of Islam? And of course, this is a clear answer that alcohol and usury and adultery and all these things which are clear verses of the Qur'an, they're not allowed. You're not allowed to have interest. Uh, yes, you can make profit, you can make businesses and things like that. So their, their next question is, 
then can we have insurance? Because if you do have insurance, insurance deals with interest. And all the entire insurance market runs with interest. And I said, of course, you have to have insurance. So they say, you just told us that you're not, not allowed to have interest, but you're telling us that you can have insurance. For what reason? I said, because it is the it is a mandatory factor from the state that you cannot drive your car with it, without insurance. So when uh, coming back to the legal rulings of responsibility of a Muslim for a nation is that if there are certain rules and laws that are mandatory by the state or the government and they may contradict with your faith, you still have to follow those rules and laws of the country. So such as insurance, which may deal with interest, but you have to have it. It doesn't matter if your faith is telling you because you have taken an oath of allegiance of a country in a place where you will abide by the laws of that country, you must have insurance. Copyright. So if you look at the details of Islamic jurisprudence, there was nothing known as copyright. But uh, when you when you are in in, in in U.S. and you're in New York and you're living here and you're taking the oath of allegiance and you follow the rules, then you must follow the rules of copyright. Meaning there are so many other examples that I can give. But going back to the point is that the rules of the country will always have an upper hand and strength over your religious rulings uh, in your faith itself. Yes, if there is a choice that you have, meaning you have a choice of making a decision of yes or no, can you do that? Then you may have that choice. And of course, you make that choice according to your faith itself. Or if you can ask or be excused or ask for, for relief of that thing that may contradict with your faith and you try your best. Uh, so uh, as a Muslim, there is a lot of responsibility for you as a person who lives in a certain nation to make sure that you abide by the laws itself. There are certain motivating words that are often used in the news and uh, by individuals who are not really skilled in a faith, one of them being Sharia. When one thinks of Islamic law, the average person out there will say, ah, Sharia law. What is your definition of Sharia? Sure. So uh, this is a long topic. Maybe we'll cover it in another segment or something because it's so long and um, and it's so detailed. And I actually did a class. We had a group of, of, of Catholic sisters who came. There were 300 of them in the Islamic Center of Long Island. And I did a course for one hour uh, presentation on what Sharia actually is. Um, sharia actually, you know, means a path. The word Sharia actually means a pathway. Um, and it's, it's, it's the law's to govern and live our lives. So for example, uh, Sharia says to be good to your neighbors. Sharia said that you cannot be a believer if you go to sleep with your stomach full and your neighbor has nothing to eat. Sharia says make sure that any surrounding dogs or animals or cats or living things that are around you should not be in a difficult time, meaning they should not be thirsty or hungry as you must provide for them. Meaning these are laws of daily lives. It means to be respectful to your parents. Sharia law says be respectful to your parents. So when you look at the word Sharia law, there is no book in Islam which, which is called Sharia law. There is no book in the Quran. There is no book in the prophetic sayings which says Sharia law. Sharia law actually means a way of life. 
Yes, there are certain aspects of, of Sharia law that are just made so clear. So when you talk about Sharia law, the first thing that comes to your mind is chopping of the hands and, and killing people and stoning people to death. That's the first thing that comes to the mind of the individual. And that is not the basis of Sharia law. The, the rulings of Sharia law actually is based upon bringing, you know, bringing, you know, peace and tranquility on the face of this earth. And yes, there are many people, as I said before, who have used these terminologies and words and hijacked the entire faith itself. And that's why I go back to the same concern that I had was that it's it's going to take a lot of time to really for us to clear that narrative. That when we talk about Quran, the first thing that should come to a person's mind is God is merciful and compassionate. That's the first word that the Quran begins with and it ends with mercy and compassion itself. But unfortunately, that's not the case. That when we say Quran, it says, oh no, it says the women don't have right, then this have don't right. So a lot of time, there are certain things that are unclear which are made as statements and, and of course titles uh, for the entire law. So going back to Sharia law itself is that it's it's important to understand its depth, but it's it's not anything concrete which says there's a book in Islam. You you cannot go in any library in the world, even the largest one, and find a book that says Sharia law. There's no law book like that. These are daily, you know, etiquettes, morals, and ethics that have been derived from the Quran and the life of the Prophet, peace be upon him, for a Muslim to live their lives. With the entire chopping of the hands and, and, and stoning, that's an entire chop topic itself, which is known as hudud. Hudud is actually an entire different topic, which is known as the, the punishments or the criminal or the criminal punishment capital. That's an entire topic to itself, which is a part of, of Sharia law itself. If you were to take Sharia law itself and make it into a hundred page book, this entire chopping in hands might not even be two pages complete. The rest 97, 98 pages are our daily lives and that's what the laws of life itself is. And again, going back to the previous question was that a lot of time people are scared that when Muslims are in America, they're going to bring in Sharia law, they're going to do this. That's not a possibility. The Sharia law that they're talking about is, is, is something that is non-existent in a society that we're living in. We're talking about Sharia law which teaches us to be nice to our parents, be nice to our neighbors, do not fraud, do not deceive, do not teach, do, do not you know, te you know cheat and do not not lie and do not gamble and you know things that that will take away modesty and morality from the lives of people that's the law that, that you know that needs to slowly be brought in which everyone agrees upon every person with a clean heart agrees upon those things together perhaps extending the term sharia to another misnomer what do you feel is wrong in the definition used in public for the term jihad Sure. Uh, you know, these are the two words, they go side to side. You cannot leave these two words uh, unless they come together. So the word jihad itself, uh, you know, is a word that in Arabic refers to struggle. Um, and I'll quote to you one of the sayings of the Prophet, peace be upon him. He said, the greatest jihad is to take yourself away from wrong and bring yourself towards righteousness, meaning wrong addictions, wrong things that a person is involved inside it. And to pull yourself 
away from the wrong environment, wrong habits, wrong actions, wrong deeds, and bring yourself towards righteousness is the greatest jihad. That's what the Prophet, peace be upon him, mentioned. So the word jihad in Arabic refers to struggle and mostly the inner struggle within our own hearts to bring it to peace, bring it to comfort, and bring it towards you know spirituality. When we use the word jihad in, in most of our times, we think jihad means to kill people. Anyone who doesn't believe in Islam, doesn't believe in faith, doesn't look like that. And I think that's also a big misconception. When you talk about a Muslim, for many of us, it's a guy or a woman with certain personalities and face. That's how Muslim looks. I, I always tell this to people that if you look around the world, the country that has the most Muslims in the world as, you know, as, as numbers of percentages in Indonesia. So if I say a Muslim man and a woman, and how many people's mind would, a, would an Indonesian person pop up, right? It doesn't. But why? Because there's a narrative that has already been set in the minds of people of that, how Muslims are. So going back to jihad itself, the word jihad is so misused that the word jihad actually refers to struggle, right? There was no warfare. In, there, there are two phases to the Prophet's life, if you look at the history. One is known as the Meccan phase, which is the early years, and then the Medina phase, the last portions of his life. There was no fight. There was no war. There was nothing like that in the Mecca phase. And there are so many verses of the Quran that uses the word jihad. And jihad means struggle, effort, working hard, and doing something that is correct and right, and coming towards righteousness. The word that is that they, they replace for jihad is the word qital. The word qital actually means qatl, which means to fight or kill. And, and unfortunately, uh, the media and uh, unfortunately, the way that things have been, people and, and the entire world is that they have misused the word jihad so much that when we talk about the word jihad itself, it, 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 they already come to the assumptions that, you know, it means to kill someone. It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything except to mean inner struggle, to bring yourself towards goodness, to bring yourself towards righteousness, to leave wrong habits and create good habits in your life. And that is something that is that is the wording of jihad itself. Uh, for the word qital, and of course we can you know uh, deny that word too, that also exists in the Quran. The word qital is also present, which means warfare, you know, killing and fighting, and that exists in every person's life, every country, every religion, every faith itself. But that is not the basis of many discussions that go across with the word jihad itself. Can we extend our discussion then to perhaps a misrepresentation of the Islamic view of women? How would you respond to the critiques? Sure. So whenever I get a chance to speak about, you know, the woman, I, I always love sharing this. And I say that Islam dot, don't, does not only give rights to the woman, but it actually gives heights to the woman, the honor, the dignity, the respect that the woman has. And it goes back to one of the statements that I mentioned previously is that it is mainly cultural that you know issues around the world that causes people to think that Islam doesn't allow the rights for the woman. So for example, in many countries for many years, women were not allowed to drive and now they're allowed to drive. That wasn't anything Islamic. Women are not allowed to go and get education and cannot make their own choices of their careers. 
that's not Islamic. That's cultural. That's more baggage of, of their cultural forefathers teaching them to do this because they want to live in a society which is dominant by men. That has nothing to do with faith itself. Many places where women do not have a choice to get married to a person that they like. And this has nothing to do with religion. When you go back to the life of the Prophet, and I say study the faith from its roots, the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he was 25 years of age, he married a woman known as Khatija, and she was older in age, and she's the one who proposed. And she was the first wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, who married with him for 25 years. And they had six children together. So if someone tells me that Islam doesn't allow women to get married with their own choice, we're getting everything wrong. The first decision or the marriage of the Prophet, peace be upon him, was based upon the, the proposal for Khatija, meaning the wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him. If someone tells me that a woman does not have a, a career choice, that she doesn't have a choice to write, choose her career, that's completely wrong because Khatija was the first one to be a biggest business owner. The Prophet Muhammad used to work for his wife as a, as a tradesman, as a business salesperson. And she was one of the, the largest business shareholders in the entire Meccan society. So a lot of time, the things that we hear about women are completely not correct because we, 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 there are so many cultural things that have been going around in the society, in different countries, which becomes you know uh, and, and 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 the most unfortunate thing is that many people in order to convince individual use religion as a basis to get their cultural things across so when they know that they won't be uh, won't be able to get their woman to not make the choices uh, of career by their own selves so they say oh islam doesn't allow you to make that choice so don't you fear god so now a person is fearful for their own religion and they don't do this so unfortunately they don't even realize that it's not religion it's more of culture and when you look at a, a realistic islamic society where where where, where you look at and and see the quran and the teachings of the prophet peace be upon him you will find that how many rights were women have how much honor dignity that a woman brings the prophet peace be upon him mentioned that every step of the life a woman brings a blessing in the life of a family when she's a daughter she brings a blessing when she's a sister she brings a blessing when she's a wife she brings a blessing when she's a mother she brings great blessing so every portion of a life of a woman is great in islam i'm looking at the clock and as is the fault and promise at the same time in a good interview and something that holds the interest, and I'm sure the interest of listeners, is the fact that that minute hand keeps on going. In the few minutes we have remaining, approximately four, what then are your own ambitions, Mufti, your own dreams? Where do I see you ten years from now? So that, that that's that's the tough one for me. So being a father for three little ones, seven, four, and and three, uh, my hope is to to make sure that I can raise them properly. I can raise them as good human beings uh, with all my responsibilities and works that I have. I want to make sure that I can give them enough time uh, and enjoy their company. Um, and along with that, I'm blessed to be living with my parents to be able to serve them as much as I can um, for what they have done for me for all of my life till this age. Uh, as a child, as a person, I can never repay them, but I hope that, uh, you know, for every moment of the life that, that I'm with them or they're with me, I'm able to serve them 
that's that's for mine, and of course, uh, my wife and my, my my family as well. So that's something with home to be able to raise my children in this very difficult society now to be good individuals, good believers, uh, faithful servants to God, and good people to humanity and nation and country. Be able to serve my parents, and of course, uh, continuously help. You know the people that 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 I touch. Uh, you know there are thousands of people that I am able to address in my congregations weekly. Hopefully, bringing forth a good change in the lives of people, and maybe over the course of the next ten years, correcting the narrative a little of what real Islam and Muslims are, and what a good Muslim and right Islam actually is. Raising a child in this incredibly diverse society. At- I'm reminded myself the statement made by President Obama when in office. He said he had that talk with his children as African-American children. He had an awareness that he had to imbue in their psyche. When you're out there, be aware. Do you feel, unfortunately, you have to do the same thing? My children are still very young, but I do actually have that conversation um, because... They travel with me a lot, and I love traveling. Uh, I show them different places, different people, meeting individuals. So yes, that talk, I guess, is very important, especially with my seven-year-old who is in school now. Um, It's important for him to have that conversation with me and make him confident enough that he can actually come back and speak to me about his issues as well. Uh, You know, And that is something that I do actually have with my children. Hopefully we'll do this again. But any final words you would like to share with the listening audience? Uh, I, I would just hope and wish from all the audience that, you know, there are a lot of you know, preconceived notions and people minds are set for people. Uh, I would say go out and, and, and see a Muslim uh, and find a Muslim who you can become a friends with. Uh, and I, I think they will be more than happy to open their doors for you visit an Islamic center nearby you and and learn and get to know the faith itself a little bit more personally because when you know someone and you trust someone, you're able to actually uh, become much more comfortable with them. So knowledge is key. Go out and, and find someone that you can connect with and find uh, and, and, and have a personal touch with them. I can certainly speak from experience that uh, if you attend the breaking of a fast, the smells, the tastes, and the conversation will have you coming back for more. In point of fact, we'd like to thank Mufti Muhammad Fahan. Hopefully again, it'll be the first of more than a few. This has been Seldom Said. My name is Robert. Be with us again. Mm-hmm.